0: Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kerry Murphy, founder and the CEO of The Fabricant, a decentralized digital fashion house building the wardrobe of the metaverse. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kerry. Can you start by sharing some more about the concept behind The Fabricant?
1: Yeah, great question. And yes, thanks so much for having me here, Peter. So the concept behind The Fabricant is a so-called digital fashion house. So it's not much different from a traditional fashion house, other than the fact that we're really focused on the digital transformation of the fashion industry. And in 2016, when I got in touch with the fashion industry and started understanding all the challenges around it from an environmental perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a sociopolitical perspective, and myself having gone through digital transformation of the film and visual effects industry, it was quite easy to predict what was going to happen with the fashion industry simply because it was only starting its digital transformation. So of course, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to be working with fashion brands, implementing 3D tools into their processes, but that was not exciting. What was exciting was the the creative expression side of designing fashion in a digital-only manner, finding how the film and visual effects and the gaming industry tools can actually add value into creating amazing digital fashion experiences. But the biggest creative challenge of the digital fashion industry has been to tie a business model into digital only fashion. And back in uh, 2017, there was two big opportunities. One was the gaming industry really proven by Fortnite simply because of the the skins and the amount of skins that they're selling on, on the game platform itself. And the other one was to work together with fashion brands because they all have a need to innovate, to be unique and implement these 3D processes in place. So the gaming industry was a very fast no. So we ended up working together with the fashion industry to bootstrap our way through with always the intention of becoming a truly native digital fashion house where we design digital-only clothing, create digital experiences around fashion, and really define this new category, which will be inevitable in the future, which is the digital-only fashion industry, which we're true believers that will become bigger than the physical fashion industry, which is a $3 trillion industry. So it's a big challenge.
0: Wow. <laughs> where to start, right? Because I mean, I absolutely love ghost vision. I'm a big believer that just that about the fact that no, no, when you set up a business, you should be dreaming big. You should be dreaming about what do we want to impact and where do we b- believe we can sit? And I think that is a Incredible one, especially where it feels that it's starting really at its infancy in relation to it as an industry itself. I'd be really interested to know about what it is in you, Kerry, that really motivates you to pursue this path. Because there's one thing knowing that this is likely with an industry, there's another thing creating a bit of an idea behind it. And then there's the actual timing and the commitment <laughs> to doing it, which is, I'm sure we'll speak to in a little bit. A startup business is never straightforward or an easy thing to do. Lots might make it look that way, but it certainly isn't. What's the motivation behind all of this? Love that.
1: Motivation really comes from passion and purpose. Seeing that this can actually have positive impact on such a massive industry to be able to create a new category, to be able to create a so-called creator economy, which has already been proven by uh, film, the social media world, uh, user-generated content, and now with the ability to create content around fashion, essentially enabling everybody in the world to have the tools in place to become a so-called fashion designer. Doesn't mean that I will understand, you know, patterns and the construction and the sewing and really the intricacies that goes into traditional fashion production. But similar to what we saw with the film industry. Nobody knew how to use film cameras or editing tools. And then the smartphone came out and so-called democratized all of that together with the distribution and the marketing tools like YouTube and Instagram. We're going to see the same trend happening with digital fashion. And this is, this is what truly excites me is to is to put the tools into place that will really allow for people in different parts of the world to actually have a chance within the fashion industry itself. Part of our manifesto says that we believe that the kid in Dakar will have as big of a chance in being a creative director for one of the biggest fashion Paris, luxury fashion houses in Paris to become the next Coco Chanel, to become the next Karl Lagerfeld, the next virtual, blah, It doesn't have to be any more a kid who's in Paris or in Europe. Only thing you need for this are the tools. And what are the tools at hand? It's internet and it's smartphone which already let's say majority of the population in the world have access to already and then of course the educational side of things those are those are necessary to truly what we call democratize the digital fashion industry and that is really what gives the passion and purpose and also just every day getting the validation from the community that this is relevant people saying The Fabricant has inspired them to become digital fashion designers. As you said, running a startup is extremely hard. It's demotivating. It gets to all of your insecurity zones. Uh, So getting that outside validation, it's what gives boosting that energy to keep moving and just working harder
0: brilliant to hear that and very um i don't know like very inspiring carrie and also i can't wait to see and hear how your journey is going to continue because it's such an innovative such a new space and undoubtedly as we know with anything new crikey the amount of learns mistakes and learns that you go through in in that journey make it such a worthwhile and, and highly exciting experience if not extremely tough as we've mentioned um because this is such a new and innovative concept attempting to disrupt such an established beast of an industry i'll be really interested to hear when it comes to how you've gone about the growth and the funding of the business from pre-seed to now you know do you get some people that just haven't got it and have just been like you know that like the process has been really quick like just talk us through that journey so far
1: Yeah, I I love that story because there's so many different facets to it. So when we first started in 2017, nobody even used the term digital fashion. You know, people come up to me, it's like, what the hell is digital fashion? That makes no sense. How do I touch it? How do I put it on? Like a lot of people said, like, oh, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It's just like from one year it went from a dumb idea to so next year it went into, oh yeah, that's a cute idea. Okay, very, very cute. Okay, I could kind of see how that might be a thing, but I don't think it will ever be. To all of a sudden it went to be like where people started seeing validity in it, where they started saying like, oh, hey, Actually, this digital fashion could have some type of contribution or impact side to the internal processes of the fashion industry, to like a marketing project. But we've always been true believers that, you know, this is a pioneering, not even disrupting, you know, this is truly pioneering of what's happening here. You know, so we ended up selling the the world's first digital couture item on the blockchain in 2019. So we got uh, Forbes headlines, BBC headlines, headlines everywhere. But the headlines always said like, why would anybody spend $10,000 on a garment that does not exist? You know, so essentially bad press, but that bad press essentially then turned into good press as we headed into the pandemic. So in 2020, it was the 16th of March, 2020, actually for us at the Fabricant, our pre-seed round had just been greenlit by Adidas. You know, so one of the biggest fashion companies in the world that was going to fund us. But that was also the day that we went into lockdown, where everybody was still talking about the Corona pandemic. Was like, well, hey, let's wait two weeks, you know, let's just lock ourselves down for two weeks and uh, see how this just kind of bypasses. Six months later, that conversation didn't exist anymore because there was so much insecurity and lack of clarity of what was going to happen, especially retail and all the physical fashion brands were really suffering. While we were just getting calls from every single fashion brand in the world to be like, hey, what is this digital thing? How can we use it? And it was actually one of the biggest fashion brands in the world that called us up two weeks before their uh, fashion show to be like, hey, we have these 400 key looks, we want to present them digitally and we'll have them ready about two days before the show itself, how many of them can you digitize in those two days? And I said, zero, not a single item can we digitize in that time. And that's when they kind of started losing interest because they realized that it challenges all the notions of how they are typically working, like all the different processes and the culture, it would have to be completely changed. And they were not able to do it in such a short time. But during that summer, we ended up working with uh, Virtual Abloh from Off-White, uh, which has been one of the biggest projects and the you know most passionate projects that we've been in, to fully digitize his collection, to fully bring him into the virtual space and find a business model connected to that, which then led to uh, us actually raising our seed round by uh, Dutch VCs called For Impact Borski Fund and Slingshot Ventures at the end of 2020, uh, which gave, gave us enough capital to start really moving us towards the product because pre that we had had the agency model because we had to bootstrap our way through and now we had seed funding and some money that we had generated from the bootstrap projects to actually start building a product which is our product of democratizing digital fashion to build that platform for everybody to become a digital fashion creator. So we built that all the way through 21. And of course, then, you know, this whole NFT and metaverse and crypto hype started, you know, a true bull market run in all of it, which really gave us kind of a good spot to be in because we had already done NFTs before they were called NFTs in 2019. So I ended up raising our series A round uh, in the middle of of the bull run which was a $14 million run. So, you know, quite big for series A. And then 2022 comes and uh, all the like big crypto platforms, they start, you know, falling and crumpling down and all these scams are coming through and people start kind of pushing us into that scam corner. It's like, oh, the fabricant, oh, they're doing something with blockchain. It must be a scam project as well. So to go from this like super hype, you know, to be like one of the top projects in the world, because everybody saw the potential of digital fashion to become a project that could be like, well, hey, aren't you guys just a bunch of scammers because you're using NFT technology? Well, like, no, that's just tech. You know, that's just the, the, you know, the background that we don't really talk about that enables ownership of digital fashion. And then Nike made a big purchase of this company called Artifact that was doing digital sneakers. So again, it sent a really good signal into this, into the space that you know all of these fashion brands are looking at the space fashion brands recognize that there is money to be made from digital only you know so it's been a, a true roller coaster ride and uh, we're kind of in, in between our series a right now where we have you know spend a lot we've built a lot and now we have uh, another one and a half years to do the so-called product market fit stage where we uh prove that we are Series B worthy
0: was there any point where you went oh this isn't going to happen, or this is just we've timed it wrong, or do you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe I've got to give up on this, or or, or did that never cross your mind? Uh, well, I would say it probably crosses
1: my mind every single day. Of, uh, by, you know, and that's why you know n- not to be driven by the fear, but really be driven by the vision and the values of the company. To be driven by the you know passion and purpose, the mission, the manifesto, the people around it. It's super important to focus on those places rather than all the things that could go wrong and, you know, like every single startup, you know, anything can go wrong. And, uh, you know, it's, for me, it's great to be a big dreamer and have a big vision, but in the end, the execution is the most important thing. You know, you can talk about high level stuff all the time, but you, you have to put actions into place too. So, you know, of course, uh, you know, that fear exists on a certain level every single day, but it's a motivating fear. It's something that really just kind of gives energy and to be like, well, hey, it is a big challenge to make this something that actually becomes mainstream adopted. You know, something that people wake up one day and they're going to be like, well, hey, what am I going to wear today digitally rather than physically? What am I going to dress my 20 avatars with today? You know, that, will exist eventually some people say 2025 others say 2030 others you know say 2050 you know there's different timelines but there's a few different things that have always happened where we see these categories really being boosted smartphone that was probably one of the the biggest ones the emergence of the internet. And right now it's the emergence of the so-called Web3 layer or, or the blockchain layer, which essentially enables authentication of ownership online. You know, So that to me is a big one. And then everybody's talking about the Apple classes now. It's like, oh my God, when the Apple classes come, it's going to be the next revolution uh, in us moving forward. So there's, of course, a lot of tech that we can be betting on that's really going to boost the digital fashion industry. But we're also true believers that the tech and the product that we're building uh, essentially will become mainstream adopted. You know, right now we're kind of in that early adopter phase or the early innovator phase, which is like, you know, two and a half percent of the population in the world. And then moving into this early adopter phase, which is about 15% of the world, you know, really moving towards mainstream adoption. So even though it's early on for what we're doing, we have very clear signs of product market fit because simply whenever we launch something, we just have this like upward spike. You know, it's not even like a gradual spike. It's just like, you know, upwards. So right now we're launching about, you know, every three months but soon that's going to be every two weeks to every single week to every single day, you know. So next year, as we start kind of rolling out all of these projects that we're doing with mainstream brands, which is, you know, big unlock to to the adoption and also unlocking the user experience because right now it's like not as good as the Web2 user experience. And the Web2 user experience is like, Put in your email and, you know, you come into this user interface, which is familiar. You've done it multiple different times. You know how to navigate through it. And now with this, let's say what we call the Web3 infrastructure, which is a slightly different user experience. We need to make that very easy. So we call it actually Web3 infrastructure for Web2 users, uh, which is to simplify all of it. And the the added value proposition there is, you know, it's, it's all the same, but now you actually have true ownership. Of these digital fashion assets. And through that, you can generate an economy, a self-sustaining economy that has all the right network effects in place. And it's all about decentralization, it's all about collaboration. It's looking outside of the, let's say, the traditional ones, like the metas of the world or the Amazons, which we call like our centralized marketplaces. Now there's so many of these platforms that actually speak to each other. And so distribution at scale is gonna be one of the keys to unlock. And what what do I mean by distribution at scale? It's just about the ability to have one single digital asset that you can plug into any environment that you choose to, which is much bigger than the physical fashion industry can ever do. Because if they want to sell 1 million items, They need to produce 1 million items. And for anybody who works with the fashion industry, realizes that the supply chain is very, very hard thing to control and to own. Even some of the biggest fashion brands in the world realize that. And all of a sudden, you have a digital only supply chain that you can fully control and you can fully distribute. So you you can create economies at scale. So what is the added value of digital? It's more sustainable big thing it's more scalable and in the end because of the scalability that will play into the profitability of it and that's once we crack the profitability side of things yeah it's just you know it's an upwards curve from there
0: there's so much of the journey in the future that is unknown in this space which is so emerging and as you say so relatively so new when you're getting investment and raising capital, how is that balance between doing that, keeping investors happy and the need to maintain control and direction over your company's vision and strategies? How's that balance been so far? Great question and
1: uh in the end, it's all about relationships your your investors. They're invested in you because they see, of course, that they can make money through you, but they're not investing necessarily into your idea. They're investing in you as an entrepreneur. So they realize that, you know, to be able for the company to be successful, the person running the company also needs to be successful and need to be set up for success. So typically... Investors come into it, you know, wanting wanting to support as much as possible. So of course, choosing the right investors is very very important. Uh, so we've been lucky to have been, you know, working with the right investors and our current lead investor from our Series A round called uh, Greenfield out of Germany. They're nothing but supportive. You know, they're of course challenging. As well, you know, really just coming in and just, you know, being like, hey, what's happening over here? Because they have that outsider perspective, you know, so it's, a, it's about working together with them, not exclude them as like a outsider party who's just annoying. No, actually including them into the day to day business and having the ability to be vulnerable enough with them when things go wrong. And this is what they also want. They, of course, know that it's it's not a joy, right? It's not that you're just like cruising and, you know, everything's going well and everything's going perfect. I think that would send more alarm bells than anything else. So having the vulnerability to say, like, these are the highlights, these are the low lights and having the vulnerability to say, like, guys, I need help. And this is my ask for you. What can you do for me today to set me up for success even more? So, of course, every once in a while, you know, they push a few buttons that you're kind of like, well, hey, do I really need to spend my time on this? So that's why that ability to be transparent in communications, transparent and often and setting up that framework to be able to be super transparent to the investors is super important because they are actually your cheerleaders. They're the ones you know who put a lot of money in your company. So it's in their best interest that you do extremely well. So when you need help, that they jump into help. So that's been my journey with it, which I'm uh, very lucky about. But I also put a lot of energy into it to ensure that, hey, we're still humans. We're still people. Let's Let's have a person-to-person conversation about how I feel rather than what this little block on my Excel sheet is saying about my numbers.
0: It sounds to me, Kerry, and please jump in a second that I'm wrong, but it sounds like the dream investment, that they're a partner. Yes, they're there and wanting to know the reasons behind decisions. Yes, they might challenge, but they're also there to be utilized as a resource. So actually going through that, the the funding raise and going through that bidding process of making sure that there's as much pushback on what can you offer for us as it is of what are we going to get from you, sounds like a pretty fundamental way that you've gone about things. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. And my 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 style of leadership is very
1: much on a personal level. You know, I I want to know you personally. Like when I speak to investors, I do as much due diligence on them as they do on me to ensure that they're the right one. I ask them the tough questions of how are you going to make me successful? You know, of course there's always a few investors that, you know, they just want to, you know, put some money into you and uh, then disappear. Which is also completely fine, but don't come running to me, then you know, like asking some really weird question and asking a lot of me when you need it. So, like I said, it, it's a relationship. It's it's a it's a marriage in the end because on paper you are married together. So it's in in both of your best interests to make that happen. So uh, yeah, I think just choosing the right partners is also between you and your success.
0: And how about the amount of time that it takes? Because there are some people, and obviously a difference per sector, you know, you've got a business to run. There's a business you're trying to grow. This stuff is not light. (laughs) It is not quick. It isn't done in a day or two. This stuff takes some time. How was that experience with the time? Were there points where you go, God, this is really disrupting what we should be doing on a continual basis? Did you find a way to manage that effectively?
1: So uh, what what I I know from my uh, startup friends who have run a previous successful startup, investors just throw money at them you know within 30 days they can have a, a bank full of money just because they've already proven that they can be successful with, with us the first timeline was the toughest one because we had the pandemic in between so we started uh, i think at the third quarter of september 2019 to raise and we would have actually closed that in six months if everything would have been fine but actually it ended up being 15 months you know from starting to closing but of course you know some on and off periods simply because of the challenges that, you know, happened to be there in the early pandemic phases. Um, My second round was actually two months from two months from starting to actually getting the term sheet that we decided to go with. And from that, it was actually five months before actually closing the books. You know, so there was a lot of complexity, you know, like just getting everybody on board, you know, getting everybody aligned, you know, from the previous investors, from all the new investors, because, you know, there was a lot of angel investors uh, involved as well. So previously, there were only five investors and now it went from five to 25. So it was a lot of communication. So actually, you know, the, the round had been closed like in early or oh, late december early january but then it was just another four months of like admin and book, bookkeeping which is quite frustrating because he just he want to keep moving forward you know so th- there's a lot of learnings to take from that but i must say you know those timelines are fairly generic from what i hear from other startups as well
0: knowing what you know about raising capital now if you're anything like me carry probably a list of things but are there some uh, one or two main things that you'd have done differently given the chance Two very big
1: learnings that I took from the last round, uh, which I I guess, you know, anyone who's done it before uh, will know this. So I had two opportunities. One, One was that I could have taken way more money. I could have, you know, included a lot more people in the mix of like, you know, some really, really good profile people. And I just somehow just thought because, you know, like we were raising a certain amount and we already had that amount. And I thought, okay, if I take more, I will have actually have to dilute more of my equity away. So my first uh, suggestion is don't worry about equity too much. It's actually more about building, you know, so of course, within reason, but you know, like I should have taken all the money that I could have taken. So that's, that's number one and the other one was we actually had quite a healthy revenue source coming in but it was not connected to the actual thing we were truly building you know so we kind of said goodbye to those relationships to be like well guys you know we're going to go you know this new route In in building a platform to really drive focus on it, which is also, you know, a good choice to do. It's just like you have to be ultra focused as a startup to really build the thing that you believe in. And I saw, let's say, this additional revenue as kind of something that was uh, just taking focus away. I should have kept that revenue stream. I, I think I think that would have been a, actually a very powerful way to extend our runway, keep the relationships intact, not let our competitors uh, get as close to us as, as they got, you know. So Because we just went behind closed doors and, you know, we just thought like, look, we're just going to build this thing and, you know, there's going to be a curtain reveal moment and, you know, it's going to be launched and everybody's going to love it and, you know, we're going to be set. But of course, you know, like that's never the reality. You know, th- the first thing you launch is like the thing that you're the most embarrassed about. And then you have to just kind of keep iterating on things. So, so two things, you know, take all the money you can get and uh, yeah, keep,
0: keep making the money that you were making before. <laughs> Excellent stuff, Kerry. Excellent stuff. Were there any significant pivots or changes your company had to make along the funding journey that that you realized that you just weren't positioned well enough for, or that, you know, things that you had to do better than you were doing? I would say every single day is a, a small pivot. Every
1: single day as a startup, you're learning something new about the people that you're working with, something new about the market. So it's just kind of like slight, small pivots, but we've never had to make like a a really, really big pivot, uh, you know, from everything that we're doing. However, that could still change, you know, right now it's the AI is the hype word of the day. And, you know, we've been working on AI forever and it's kind of been, you know, very much in our roadmap since the beginning because our CTO has a PhD in AI, so yeah, let's get let's put this guy to work to really develop these tools that will really help speed everything up internally and give a new consumer experience. So with the new AI hype, we just had to take a little bit more of an aggressive approach in developing this tool, and uh, yeah, just a little bit slow down more on let's say the marketing side of things because. You know, the NFT, crypto, metaverse, you know, they were like hype words at some point that you could use in marketing. And we needed to kind of pivot away from that very quickly, simply because of, it was associated with so many scams in the industry.
0: AI itself, uh, there's so much in the news about it taking over people's jobs and how it's going to impact the working world. I've definitely got a view or two on it in our particular industry, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts on how this is going to continue to evolve on, and the impact it's going to have over the over the working world. Yeah, absolutely. And probably like in my
1: socials, I say this quote a lot, and you've probably seen it as well. It says, it's not AI that will take over people's jobs. It's people using AI that will take over people's jobs. So, you know, in the end, this means it's a tool, and people who start utilizing the tool in smarter manners than others to to make things faster. To make things cheaper, to make things more efficient, that's when AI will really just take over. So we, we see a lot of amazing tools, and uh, yeah, it's it's creating big disruption, and it will probably keep creating big disruption. So that's why. Having the agility for change is super important. And I think startups have really proven that. Not everybody has to kind of change mindset. You know, Some people really just like to stay where they are and stay comfortable with the tools that they're using. But if we look at any industry that's gone through digital transformation, film and visual effects, uh, photography, architecture, automotive, all the design industries, you see that all the people who adopted very quickly to the digital tools were way ahead of the game. You know, they they were early to the party and they were able to make things faster, make things more efficient, make things cheaper, and that's kind of the let's say the golden triangle uh you know where you're really just hitting a nerve and where you start disrupting and changing the the old industries. And this is what I see for AI happening. But also for us, you know, we have to be very diligent on this uh because it's going to change so much of these processes that are very slow. Creating 3D is extremely slow. It's painstakingly slow. So actually I see a lot of opportunity of like, hey, how can we implement these tools to tell our stories better? Because something that AI will not change is storytelling. We have this kind of notion since the beginning of humanity, which has always connected us and it is storytelling. So any design industry is a form of storytelling. So how will we implement and start using this tool in a very effective way to speed up all of our processes? And I'll use a very dead simple, uh, boring example, uh, OKRs and KPIs. Everybody hates writing those. Oh, all of a sudden you can use ChatGPT. Hey, like, look, I need to establish this. Can you just write them? And it's just like, boom, boom, boom. You know, within a few seconds, you have all of that. So even as simple as, you know, something like processes to all the way to creative development. You know, so how we're using it is in, you know, just mood boards, storyboards, what happens Yes, we, we're not anymore hiring mood board artists or storyboard artists. All of a sudden, we can generate it faster with zero cost involved. That to me is, again, category defining. That to me is like almost like where I start getting scared of like, hey, how how will users consumers clients how will they replace the fabric and when it comes down to this but again it's that having the ability to change within the tools that exist that will define the success uh, of any company
0: a question that i want to ask how you've gone about building and maintaining a strong team during your company's growth so far you know if there have been any big learns along that way and it, it, it almost if there's any advice that you would give to other founders and ceos who are on that journey as well really
1: Yeah, I would say um, recruitment is uh, top three challenges of any CEO of any company. How do you recruit the right talent, uh, you know, for long term? And I previously also mentioned, you know, like you have different people for different chapters of your growth. The company grows and you have to ask yourself, are the people growing with the company in, in a way? It's again, it's like a relationship, you know, two people being in a relationship, both of them, you know, have growth. You know, is is the growth in the same direction? Do you have aligned visions with each other? Are you contributing to each other's growth? This has been a big challenge. And, you know, we have a lot of people since the early days. But yeah, one of my biggest challenges uh, six months ago was actually to let go of my very first employees, you know, doing layoffs. uh, You know, uh, it's never easy, especially when, when, when they're your family members you know so that's definitely been a big challenge and recruitment definitely stays uh, as one of the big challenges but i would say the biggest advice that i have there that's that i see working for myself is to have a very strong mission and vision as a company uh, having having very strong values having very strong culture something that i worked from you know day one because actually for me the most important thing was not to you know, start a company that's the the biggest and the best, and you know drives a lot of revenue and gets a lot of millions in it. No, it's actually to to work with amazing people, to start a culture. You know that I feel super excited to come to every single day, to reworking with passionate people who have a lot of purpose and demand growth from me, challenge me to grow every single day. You know that's what I want the culture to be. So I've set very strong values. If anything, we need need to change those values because the values that we set in the early days, they don't apply anymore because we've gone from that family stage now into this uh, tribe stage. And after the tribe stage, it will be the town stage. And from a town, we will grow into a city. From a city, we will grow into metropolis, so on and so forth. You know, so many companies have already gone through this and uh, it's been actually explained as a Book called Blitz Scaling, which talks all about this, like all the different phases and how there are different people for different phases, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's just about again having the agility to change within the challenges that exist.
0: In such an innovative sector, Kerry, in such a new set, in such a new part of the sector, how do you go about positioning yourselves to stay ahead of the curve? How do you make sure that? you know, you're one of the leading examples of how things can be done best in this new space. I've taken a lot of
1: learnings uh, the past years that I've realized that you don't have to be actually technically the best or the best when it comes down to the highest quality or, you know, just the things that, you know, are really important for you. It's actually PR can be a big one, you know, because I've seen, you know, some companies uh, who have, let's say, passed us, Simply because you know they're just very, very good at marketing themselves. I wouldn't say that they're better than us when it comes down to technology and you know scaling and processes and and people. You know they're just extremely good at just constantly being you know top of mind, being seen in every single publication, having the best relationships with journalists. And I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. You know, so how do we bypass that when it's not so inherent to our DNA? Well, yeah, it's about being best. It's about showing the best experience. And, uh, you know, in the end, PR doesn't stay for too long because everybody has a certain runway. And we also have to really prove a a business model in the end with it as well. You know, so I I think having having the strongest business model is something that really allows for, you know, staying ahead and being agile. In, In such an industry, you have to be agile because the market conditions change the whole time. So the hypothesis we even had three months ago doesn't apply anymore. You know, so how do we have the right mindset to constantly innovate internally so we can be constantly innovating externally? Extremely challenging, I must tell you.
0: You mentioned one book already, but is there any other book, podcast or movie that you'd recommend that you've taken some long lasting learns from?
1: Yeah, I have, definitely have a favorite read right now that I can recommend to everybody. And I almost feel like I don't, I don't want to give it away because it's such a good resource. There's a kind of a, a stigma around the word strategy. You know, everybody's throwing the word "strategy" around. Yeah, we need a strategy for this and that. You know, it's kind of like misused word. So there's a great, great book that I was actually recommended to me by a friend of mine called Javier Suarez, who was the founder of Travel Perk, and uh, he he said I implemented this book into my organization as a must read. It's called good strategy, bad strategy, as simple as that. And it gives us this really just great framework on how to think about strategy. You know, what what's a bad strategy? What's a good strategy? And the stories told in the book around, you know, how, different companies implement these strategies resonates a lot in how we've been implementing that. And what it's given us is a, is a really good framework on how to think about strategy, how to think about our challenges, you know, how do we diagnose the challenge? You know, what are the guiding policies behind it and how do we actually do the actionable items behind it? So anybody, you know, basically in any industry, I think this book applies to everybody.
0: And if there was one learn you'd want our listeners to take away from your journey so far, Kerry. I think I might know what it is. Let's see if I'm right. What is it? Well, I don't know it myself. So maybe you can tell me what my (laughs) learning is. (laughs) The thing you repeated the most is having a strong vision. (laughs) It's uh, actually,
1: I never thought about it as a learning because it's so, it's so inherent. You know, it's, it's like the, it's the foundation, right? It's the one that allows to eliminate the insecurities from the mix. It's the one that when you have the worst of the worst days and you come back to the vision and you're like, damn, actually my worst day in this industry is better than my best day in my previous career, you know, and that's kind of, that's very motivating Uh, You know, just getting that outside of validation that, you know, it resonates with people is uh, is super important. But again, it's easy to have a vision. It's easy to have ideas, but it needs to be underpinned by execution. It needs to have a very, very strong team who understands what it means and knows how to take the right incremental steps to actually get to this grand vision because it You know, we've seen a lot of companies with too big of a vision and not being able to execute that, you know, so it's actually the, the balance between, you know, execution and vision that go hand in hand. But the vision definitely is something that I come back to a lot. And then the
0: values, values and vision, I would say those two things. Have all the grandiose visions you want, but if you can't execute it, good luck achieving them. So I think that's excellent. Thank you so much, Kerry, for coming on. I've really loved our conversation and sharing your journey in Leadership Learns with us today. I know that will be lots that resonate with listeners and like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Thanks again, Kerry, for coming on. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed
1: this one.